Hello, and welcome to Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where editors of Health Affairs and guests talk about the health policy news of the week. I'm Christopher Fleming. We're recording this on Thursday, May 11th, the expiration day for the U.S. Public Health Emergency Declaration associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. To talk about what this means, what happens now, and how we might move forward, we're excited to be joined by Larry Gostin. Larry is the O'Neill Professor of Global Health Law and the Director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Larry is also a Professor of Medicine at Georgetown and a Professor of Public Health at the Johns Hopkins University. And this morning, uh, in Health Affairs Forefront, Larry published an article with Abby Gluck titled, Why the End of the Public Health Emergency Really Matters. We'll discuss some of the thoughts in that article, but we'd also encourage listeners to click on the link in the show notes and read the whole article. Larry, welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. Well, great. We're, we're very glad to have you. Well, let's, let's start with the basics. Uh, can you remind our listeners you know, what we mean when we talk about the emergency declaration, or I guess really declarations, plural, uh, how this works legally, uh, what were some of the things that were allowed under the declaration that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been allowed otherwise? Yeah, um, it's important to realize that today um, President Biden has concluded um, the public health emergency declaration. Um, And we'll talk a lot about what that means, but essentially um, it means that a lot of the health and uh, social safety net um, that uh, we've come to accustom during the COVID-19 pandemic is going to either end now or will end gradually, uh, including you know cost-free tests and ultimately cost-free treatments and vaccines, which will come later. But there are also other emergency uh, acts which continue in place. Um, so two of them would be um, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which enables the Food and Drug Administration to issue an emergency use authorization. We've come to know that term because it's for treatments and vaccines for COVID. Um, And also um, the Public Readiness Emergency Preparedness Act, so-called the PREP Act, which gives a liability protection to healthcare workers and others um, in an emergency. Those will stay, but the public health emergency ends today. And of course, um, just about a week ago, the World Health Organization declared the end of the public health emergency of international concern globally. So it sounds like, um, I mean, today obviously is, as you say, is an important date and there are important legal consequences and and uh, health policy consequences tied to it. But uh, there's sort of a stagger, a staggering of, you know, some things have started to unwind already, you know, the states with the Medicaid unwinding. Uh, there are some uh, flexibilities in telehealth, et cetera, that have been extended sort of and you know, for, at least for the foreseeable future will remain. Uh, is that sort of a, a, a good description of what's going on? It is a very good, good description, um, Chris. I mean, essentially, the ending of the public health emergency will mean that as of today, a few things will be gone, like um, n- not necessarily being able to access cost-free tests. Um, the way we've uh, come to to think about that. But the way I like to think of it is, is that America is not a very 
safe place to live in terms of our health and social safety net compared to other peer countries um, that provide a much more generous health and social safety net. But that safety net really swelled during the emergency. The COVID emergency was a galvanizing effect. It helped people um, get health care, 20 million uh, more on the rolls. Um, it prevented people from being evicted from their homes. It had um, food assistance. It provided flexibility for hospitals. And while all of that isn't going away on the dime today, make no mistake about it, we're seeing the gradual but absolutely certain unraveling of the health and social safety net, the COVID era brought to Americans and we've come to believe in um, and rely on, particularly for the most vulnerable among us. Well, and I wanted to pick up on that because I was really struck by uh, the way you talked in your article. Uh, You and Abby mentioned, as you said, the galvanizing nature of an emergency. Uh, But, you know, you also pointed out uh, and you just sort of alluded to that here that the explicit emergency may be gone, but certainly the urgency remains from you know the day-to-day issues that you mentioned that, that plague our healthcare system in terms of the way uh, we don't meet the needs of the most vulnerable, uh, you know, to the uh, uh, preparedness for the next pandemic, which unfortunately will will you know assuredly come at some point. Uh, you talk about sort of the way that you know we get excited briefly about public health, and then you know now we're already seeing uh, the sort of familiar signs of neglect. So. You know what are what are your sense? What's your sense? Are we just sort of doomed to repeat this cycle? Or is there any? Do you have any hope that uh, we might be able to retain this sort of galvanizing spirit that we experienced during COVID? You know, I'm afraid not. I mean, I had a a recent book called Global Health Security, and the whole thesis of that book um, was how we lurch from panic to complacency and back to panic and back to complacency. We are absolutely in a in a position of complacency now. Um, you know, a lot of people see COVID in the rearview mirror, but it's important to emphasize that COVID is still taking, you know, over a thousand lives in America a week, um, much more than influenza. Uh, and not only that, um, but we face future crises um, that are all but certain to occur. Um, and we've seen this time and time again from, from uh, SARS to MERS to Ebola, you know, through to Zika um, and uh, novel influenzas. And right now we're seeing avian influenzas and things like that. So we're not prepared, you know, and in many ways we're less prepared than they, we were before the pandemic. And the reason is, is twofold. One, um, the public has literally lost trust in public health and science, and they're just not complying with public health orders. That's not going to, we're not going to fare well if we have such huge amounts of distrust in CDC and other public health agencies. Um, and then the second reason is, is that state and local governments have been curtailing, rapidly curtailing public health powers and particularly emergency powers. Um, So we've got less than we did before. And then finally, there's litigation. Um, Over a thousand cases 
challenging things like vaccine mandates, um, uh, masks, trying to require hospitals to give bogus treatments like ivervectin. So we're really not in a good place now um, when the next uh, epidemic or pandemic hits. Um, But it's very likely that it will uh, affect us and we need to do much more. You mentioned earlier on uh, the WHO uh, direct declaration of emergency. And as I said, you've been very involved on the global side. I want to get to that in a second. But I do want to just before that touch very briefly on one of the sort of uh, note, one of the things that you, you and Abby noted in your article, which I thought was very interesting, which was sort of thinking about uh, how different things would have been uh, if COVID had hit before the ACA was enacted rather than after. You know, we think about sort of the ACA as sort of a, a cov- day-to-day coverage expansion, but uh, it really did have a pretty pretty marked effects on how we dealt with the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked me that question because, you know, the ACA was the unsung hero of the pandemic um, in so many ways. Um, it allowed for um, uh, cost-free um, uh, prevention services like COVID vaccines. It was uh, flexible enough to swell by over 20 million um, people on in Medicaid um, and uh, and ACA subsidies. Um, it really um, came to the rescue. You'll remember, just like COVID vaccines are controversial now, the ACA was hugely controversial. Congress tried to repeal it countless times. Um, and it wasn't very popular at the beginning, but boy, um, did it uh, play this the superhero role um, in uh, COVID-19. Um, I also wanted to mention one other thing that we haven't touched upon yet, um, which is um, surveillance and data. Um, it goes to your question, Chris, about the issue of um being prepared for the next one, and also being prepared for the ongoing number of deaths and possible variants that are going to surprise us with COVID-19. The vulnerable are still very much um, in the grip of this uh, pandemic. Um, CDC got um, emergency level um, authorities um, to be able to gain data, for example, requiring laboratories to report COVID data. And even during um, the heights of the pandemic, much of the knowledge we had about, um, say, um, uh, emerging variants or um, genomic sequencing data um, or um, whether vaccines or treatments work, the CDC didn't know the answers to those. We got them from the UK, Israel, South Africa. And that was a time when data was freely available to the CDC. Now, the CDC is scrambling um, to try to be able to maintain its surveillance. So also surveillance and data systems are very important for future preparedness, not just for COVID, but for other um, pandemic risks. Well, thanks, Larry. And and, uh, as I mentioned, in addition to uh, what's been going on in the U.S. Of course, there's been a lot happening uh, internationally uh, in an attempt to put 
the global health community on a better foot, although it's a little bit pessimistic based on what you just said, but trying to put us on a better footing uh, for the next pandemic uh, than we were for this one. Uh, you were the lead author on a recent piece uh, for us just a couple of days ago that talked about uh, the pandemic treaty that's being negotiated under the auspices of the WHO, uh, and in particular, the attempt to achieve greater equity than we saw during COVID. Can you talk about that a little bit before we end? I can, yes. Um, yes, I've been very active um, in Geneva, uh, helping to draft the pandemic treaty and also um, reform of the international health regulations. Um, from what the world has suffered through this pandemic is unfathomable. It's, it's not just health, it's social isolation and mental health. Um, it's huge educational deficits. Um, it's economic um, uh, a catastrophe in, in many parts of the world during the pandemic. Um, and throughout, there was one prevailing narrative, both in the United States and globally, which was the deep inequities. We saw that with vaccine distribution, which was very inequitable around the world. And so the, the World Health Assembly has charged the WHO and governments with negotiating two major reforms. One is the pandemic treaty, um, and another is a reform of the international health regulations. We're at a pivotal moment. After all the suffering, we can either go back to complacency or do what we all know we need to do, which is really fortify our ability to um, prevent, um, protect, and respond um, to global health risks and emergencies, and do so in an equitable and fair way. So what I call global health with justice. Um, shame on us if we don't prepare now and do better next time. Well, you know, there's always a lot more to talk about, uh, and certainly on this subject even more so, but we're re reaching the end of our time, so we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. It's a real privilege. And thanks as well to our listeners uh, for joining us. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.